Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. There are a few themes that come round and round and round on this show. Uh, Ways that we love to share um, about how we can create more calm, more presence, more groundedness, more peace and contentment in our lives. And that includes the reduction of stress. And we know that when we reduce stress in our bodies and in our orbits, we tend to be happier people. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about how to do that and how to do that with a little bit different and more gentle approach. My first guest is Dr. Arthur Ciara McCauley. He is the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Decrease Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Dr. Ciara McCauley is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 30 years. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. He's currently in private practice Although he has uh, been on faculty at Harvard Medical School for many years, lecturer for the American Cancer Society, and chief psychologist at Metro West Medical Center, as well as the director of Metro West Counseling Center of the Alternative Medicine Division of Metro West Wellness Centers in Framingham, Massachusetts. Well, that's a lot of Metro West. <laughs> Doctor, <laughs> but, but welcome, welcome. I, this, this subject fascinates me because I, I work with clients on a daily basis and the idea to use the softer, more gentler, um, virtuous character strengths to build our resiliency, to build our hardiness and reduce our stress is of tremendous value. Yes, uh, Lisa, good morning, and thank you for having me. And, oh, and pleasure. I, I do think that one of, the, one of the mistakes we make is that we don't realize that stress is really produced by the way we perceive. 
And if we perceive accurately, if we perceive the truth in situations and, and with the people that we encounter, we lower our stress levels significantly. So perception, the way we perceive, and it's important to focus on this because our old conditioning, you know, our conditioning early in life makes us sort of grow up with certain biases in terms of how we perceive ourselves and others. And I think our job as adults is to teach ourselves to perceive the truth. And that's where empathy comes in because empathy really slows down the emotional brain and makes us focus more with the thinking brain so that we can slow our reactions enough so that we can see where our biases are and we can understand the truth about ourselves and others more completely. I think you make a very interesting point that when we are empathic, when we activate um, this more kinder, gentler side of our emotional life, which is very right-brained, if, I, if I'm understanding this correct, isn't it? It's, it's a more uh, right-brained form of, of feeling, or am I wrong? No, no, you're right, because we're using the thinking part of the brain, which, of course, as you know, is the right brain. And we, we, we don't want to rule out using the emotional part of the brain, but when we're trying to understand the truth in interactions when we want to try not to react quickly. When we're reacting quickly, it's usually from old conditioning. Yeah. It's, for instance, in one of my group sessions, I added a man who's tall and he's a recovering alcoholic. And one of my patients had been married to a tall alcoholic who had been very abusive and physical. And immediately she got very afraid of this man and kind of shunned him in the first few sessions. And I was asking her why she never looked at Roy, and she made the comment then, well, I know men like this. They tend to be violent, and they tend to have tempers. And the facts are that this man has not had a temper. When he has drank excessively during his life, but he's been sober for four years. And he never hit anyone. He never was abusive to his wife. He has a positive relationship with his children. So you see, just the physical presence of someone with a little background allowed her to generalize. And that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in because it's focused on the distortions we make based on our past experiences. So she was looking at this man as if he was her ex-husband, not realizing that just because they were both alcoholics doesn't mean they're both the same. And certainly one was violent and one isn't. So it's slowing down the reaction enough. And I think when we give and receive empathy, we're able to do this. We're able to slow down and look beyond the surface look into the heart and soul of another human being and find out who they really are. Mm. And what I hear you saying is this is also using the internal experience and transforming it so it becomes more um, factually and externally referenced. So I think what I'm saying is that, that we slow ourselves down, we say we're feeling this, we have a perception of this, it's making us uncomfortable, and we are going to actually sort of hit the pause button on that for a minute and then really suss out or tease out what's going on. Exactly, Lisa. We're, we're hitting the pause button so that we can identify some of our old conditioned thinking so that we don't project it onto other people immediately. And in the book, I try to focus on this a great deal because I think it contributes to prejudice as well. In fact, I know it does. You know, whenever we encounter someone who we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a degree of stress. And, and this is very important because when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, which limits our capacity for empathy while also causing repetitive negative thinking. And if you have prejudice against several types of people, it's likely that your cortisol levels will be consistently high on a daily basis. 
And in addition to causing negative thinking, cortisol also causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss, breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety. And, and most importantly, it also causes memory loss. It actually kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. So it's a very destructive neurochemical if it's released on an ongoing basis. And when we have prejudices against other people, this is in our system ongoing, and it makes it very difficult for us to be empathic. It sort of takes our wide lens camera and makes us, it pulls it into having a very narrow view of other people. And then we're only going on our history rather than going on reality. And empathy is very truth-oriented. As you say, it slows us down enough so that we can really examine some of the past conditioning we have had and open up the door to empathy. Once we experience empathy, once we give and receive empathy, interestingly, we reduce this miracle hormone, oxytocin, which is (laughs) a hormone that you produce when you have a baby, right? And and it really is a near, near magical neurotransmitter because unlike cortisol, it's released when we have stress, oxytocin reduces anxiety and cortisol levels. It's been proven to help us live longer. It aids in recovery from illness. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. It increases generosity and empathy. And it reduces inflammation. Importantly, it reduces cravings for addictive substances. It it creates bonding and, and a sense of trust and security with other people so we can open up and be vulnerable and reveal our true self. You know, oxytocin is so powerful. And, and oftentimes we talk about this in groups. How do you, you know, release more oxytocin? You know, and the joke in the group is, you know, well, you got to hug it out, right? You got you to gotta get connected. And, and the way to get connected, one of the vehicles that I know to be true that works is just exactly what you're saying. You activate empathy. And I think it's important to actually define what empathy is because some people confuse it with sympathy. They yes. confuse it with uh, a whole host of other um, feelings or sentiments. So would you do that? Just let us, just clue us in on what you mean by empathy exactly. Well, empathy is really everyday mind reading. It's the ability to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It's different than sympathy in that sympathy rushes into console immediately based on identifying with another person. I'll, I'll give you an example that I had just recently, which I think is poignant. One of my clients, uh, her dad had passed away last year, and she was very close to her father and devastated by the loss. He, he had a fatal heart attack, massive heart attack. She moved into a neighborhood in Massachusetts coming from California, and, and she heard that one of her neighbors, who she didn't know very well, had just lost her father. Her father had died suddenly as well. So she put together a basket of food and flowers and she walked down to the neighbor's house and she rang the doorbell. And when the woman answered, she said, oh my God, I, 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 don't, I know you don't know me very well, but my dad passed away last year. I was devastated. I'm still trying to get over it. And I know you must be devastated. I just wanted to bring you something. And the woman looked at her and she said, I thank you for being so generous. But my father left us when we were two years old. I never knew my father. I wouldn't know my father if I saw him walking down the street. So, you know, I'm really not devastated, but I appreciate you trying to give to me and trying to, you know, heal my wounds. But I really don't have wounds. I I don't feel the way you feel. So sympathy, as opposed to empathy, occurs when we identify with another person's experience as if we 
as if we, th their experience is similar to ours. She, she thought that because she was devastated when her father died, this woman must be the same, right? But from an empathic point of view, you would have asked a question. Empathy asks open-ended questions. How, how are you? What was your experience with your dad like? I just wanted to know, you know, I wanted to try to help you, but I, I'm not sure how you're feeling. It doesn't assume anything. Another just quick example is a, 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 one of my client's daughters got irritated with her last week because she, she went out with a date with a fellow with long hair and a bit of a beard. And when, when, the, when the girl came home, the mother said to her, oh, what did you think of his, of his appearance? Do you like him? Now, that's a question, but really it was a statement. And most questions are statements. So instead of asking an open-ended question like, how did your date go, honey? Or how did you feel about your date? She actually told her what she should be thinking. She was trying to program the daughter into, into thinking what she wanted her to think, which is, I don't really care for his appearance. How about you? You know, that's not, a, that's not empathy is opening up the discussion to see what another person experiences, not assuming it's the same as what I experience. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to carry on the conversation, um, discerning the differences between empathy and sympathy and how activating empathy, empathy helps us reduce our stress. Um, to learn more about the doctor's work, please go to www.balanceyoursuccess.com. On Facebook, the page is Dr. Arthur C. And on Twitter, that handle is at D-O-C-A-P-C. And once again, the book by Dr. By Dr. Arthur Ciara McCauley is The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Decrease Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Here come the tunes. We will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. 
So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are having a heartfelt discussion about compassion, empathy, and what reducing stress through the uses of activating these these virtues, uh, as I like to think they are, um, can help us decrease anxiety and develop greater resilience. My guest is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley. He is the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Decrease Anxiety and Develop Resilience. So Dr. Sierra McCauley, before the break, we were talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And you shared a, a very interesting story about your client going to visit the home of a woman who had just lost her father, as did your client. And yes. she had assumed assumed that um, she would be having a shared experience by extending empathy to the, uh, sympathy rather to this woman. And in fact, that wasn't the case because she had prejudged what the encounter would be like. And I think this really teaches us a lesson about the difference between activating sympathy and empathy. Yes. So talk a little bit about ways in which we can activate our our empathy gland. That's what I like to call it. (laughs) Well, you know, the first step I think is, Lisa, is most importantly is to slow down. And we really have to teach ourselves to slow down. That's why in the book I have a chapter on empathic listening. Our youngest daughter, who's, a, who's an educator, a teacher, um, says that it's probably the most important chapter of the book because she says, Dad, people don't listen to each other anymore. We all talk over each other. When we're, one of my clients uh, calls it reloading because his wife always says to him, Tom, you're reloading, meaning that his mouth is open while she's talking. So if we're planning our response while someone else is talking, we limit empathy because we can't really take in fully what they're expressing and, and you can't really fully understand them. There's a, there's a term called holy listening, listening another person's soul into a position of disclosure and discovery. That I think it's a beautiful definition because it really is saying that when you truly listen to someone else, they, they will talk to you. So many times, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, Lisa, people will say, oh, he won't talk to you or she won't talk to you. But when you really listen on that level, Human beings almost can't resist it because every human being in their heart wants to be understood. And when they really know that you're, you're actually understanding them on a level that they, they rarely experience, they take to you like a honey to be. I mean, when you, if you know how to relate empathically, you're going to be successful personally and professionally. And, you know, empathy has got a bad rap in the past because people have often said it's kind of a light capacity, a light skill. It really isn't. Stephen Covey said years ago in one of his first books, he was asked, what's the most important capacity or ingredient in being successful in the corporate world? And he said, I have a one-word answer, empathy. The Harvard Business Review did a study trying to find out why some of their graduates of their MBA programs weren't successful in the corporate world. Why weren't they? They lacked the ability to make people understood and make people feel heard, which is the heart and soul of empathy. And what happens in marriages when we really don't listen to each other, when we think we know our spouse like the back of our hand, which I think is very dangerous, because we all change over time. We, we not only change our appearances, we can change our views. We can change our views in many, many ways as we learn and grow. So 
when, when you're feeling like you know someone so well or that you're so similar to that person that you'd only need to hear a little bit of what they're saying, you're producing stress in the other person. You know, our, our nervous systems talk to each other like we have a remote control in our hands. So if I'm talking rapidly and I'm not really listening to you, you sense it and your heart starts to beat faster. So what happens when we have that, that stress reaction? We produce cortisol. We limit our ability to be empathic. We're not really understanding each other. We're talking at each other, which produces cortisol, which causes all those negative experiences. When we slow down, when we ask open-ended questions rather than closed-ended questions, as the example I gave earlier, we're letting another person know that I know that you're unique and special and I want to understand you. I truly am going to take the time to understand you. And that's when we make deep, deep connections. Yeah. I am thinking of a a situation I had recently. I had a a group that normally has many, many people in it. And for whatever reason, summer, different schedules, only two people showed up. And they were two men. One guy showed up really agitated and angry and has had enough. He says he's had enough of all of this and he promptly fell asleep. And the other guy who was a new arrival, and this is in um, an addiction recovery setting, hadn't really spoken at all since his arrival about his story. And what happened was this guy proceeded to just open up. You know, he had, he had my full attention. He, mm-hmm. You know, we were sitting on the, on the ground, cross-legged, and just looking at one another. And he proceeded to tell me his life story and answered his own questions as to what he needed to do. And I think that that's another part of the equation that and Carl Rogers did that so beautifully with his humanistic approach, you know. Yes, well, I mean, I, I really think Rogers was one of the first that really accented the power of listening on that level, and, and of course, he used the word empathy. Yeah. And your client had your your ultimate attention. It it softens a person. They can tell by our voice and our attentiveness. You know, I have an elderly patient who was seeing her primary care physician recently. And you know how the physicians, they type while they're talking to you? Yes. <laughs> she's 84 years old. So he's looking at the computer, he's typing, and she's trying to talk to him. And she said, I'm not talking to you anymore. He said, excuse me? Turn around, look at me eye to eye. You only give me 10 minutes anyway when I'm here and stop typing or I'm leaving. And uh. he, he turned around and he listened to her. And interestingly, she had to come back three days later because, because of some... Uh, negative blood work. And he told her that it was the first time in that day, it was around three o'clock in the afternoon, that he had felt calm. He thanked her, which shocked her. But he thanked her because what did she do? She slowed him down. And she said, take your hands off the type, off the keyboard, look at me, make contact with me, treat me like I'm a human being that you care about. It's only going to take a few minutes. And you know what happened? He benefited because his neurochemistry changed as her changed because she gave him the opportunity to be empathic with her. And there came a chemical change that calmed him that probably made the rest of his day better, not worse. Mm. And this is the mere neuron effect, right? I mean, they were sort of vibing off of one another. And this is something that we do all day long, usually mindlessly. Yes, yes. Mindlessly because 
I think once people realize, Lisa, the benefits of this kind of listening and empathic interacting, they make the change because we want to feel happier. We want to feel calmer. When we're calmer, when we have calm energy, we're more productive. Not only do we listen well, but we listen well at work and at home, and it makes a difference. And people want to be with us. They want to be around us. And it doesn't take any more time than it does to be rude or callous. Oh, it's so, it's so true. I love what you, the phrase you used, holy listening. Yes, I just love that definition. It came from a theologian, Douglas Steer. I, I quoted him in a book that I wrote several years ago, The Power of Empathy. And I call it empathic listening or holy listening. I think it's the same thing because what it's doing is it's releasing oxytocin. And while cortisol makes us fearful, oxytocin makes us feel comfortable, secure, and in a position to give and receive empathy. And it reduces anxiety. It reduces the release of cortisol. It reduces addictive craving. And most importantly, it reduces aggression, fear, and bias. You know, we can't be unbiased if we're stressed because stress, we now know, we now know through credible science that stress causes the release of cortisol. And we have cortisol in our system. We can't see clearly. We, we see in a very, very narrow way. Red. We see red. <laughs> we see red. And we don't see the truth. Yeah. Empathy is truth-oriented. And when people realize you can actually cause a chemical change in your brain. You and I are having an interaction now. I, I, I feel understood by you. I, I hope you feel understood by me. So we're producing something that's going to last when this show ends. You know, you go on with your life, I go on with mine. But there's something inside our systems now that we produce that is going to make us better with the next person we encounter. Oh, I, I agree with you 500%. I wanted to ask you about... Um, stress and thought and perception going back to that, 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 that the brain thinks approximately, give or take a few thousand, 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much information that moves through that uh, dashboard of ours. And where we attach, you know, where we attach perception or sort of, you know, stick to a thought that runs through this brain is where we find ourselves. And how can we use the activation of empathy or the activation of a more mindful approach to this thought process to help us become less stressed? Well, I I think once we accept that perception and stress are intimately related and the likelihood that each one of us has biases within ourselves, toward ourselves and others, is very high. You know, I always say that, you know, most people write a novel about themselves early in life. We, 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 we take in what we see from the mirrors around us as if they're reflecting who we actually are, our parents, our teachers, our coaches, whoever. But when we're looking into mirrors that are cracked themselves or they have their own biases, we take those biases on. So if we got a sense from, our, from the important people in our life that we're not very intelligent and we're not very athletic, we're not very talented in, in, a, in a drama club or singing or whatever it is, we start to feel that we're less than and we go into the world thinking that way. And then we have a negative self voice. And when we yeah. have a negative self voice, you're, you're, you're very likely to take in stress when it isn't even yours. We buy into other people's issues. And so we don't use empathy to read the situation accurately because empathy teaches us who to get close to and who to stay away from. And ah, yes. 
But, you know, but that's also when we are, when we're tapped into empathy, we're tuned into intuition. And one can only do that when calm. Yes, when calm. The key, the key two words to empathy is slow down, slow down. We are out of time, and this has been such a delightful conversation. I want to give our listeners information where to find you and the book. Once again, the title of the book by, Dartha, by Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley is The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Decrease Anxiety and Develop Resilience. To connect, please go over to the website, www.balanceyoursuccess.com and on Facebook that page is Dr. Arthur C and on Twitter the handle is and I'm going to spell it out it's D-O-C-C-A-P-C so once again the Twitter handle is at D-O-C-A-P-C thank you so much doctor for being with us this morning Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's been a delight to interact with you. Thank you very, very much. Likewise. Have a beautiful day. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Cayman has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about fretting, fears, phobias, soothing anxiety, and the orchestra that lives in our heads. My next guest is Dr. Reed Wilson. He is the author of the new book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. Dr. Wilson is director of the Anxiety Disorders Treatment Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and is adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He designed American Airlines' first national program for the Fearful Flyer and served as program chair of the National Conferences on Anxiety Disorders for several years. He currently serves as expert for WebMD's Panic and Anxiety Community. Well, we are really glad you're with us, Dr. Wilson. Well, thanks, Lisa. I'm ready. Let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about this peanut gallery that lives in our brains and how to soothe them, quell them, overcome them, tackle them, or make them just quit. <laughs> yeah, that's great. 
So, you know, we've, we've got a lot of voices in our heads, have you noticed? So we, we can really make them five or six voices, but, but I think we really want to focus on just two voices, the, you know, the part of us that starts worrying and being afraid and, and the part of us that needs to take control of that and dominate it in some way. It's totally, totally fine to worry it's just we can't let it run the show, and that's that's what we need to pay attention to. Can I ask you a question about worry and the brain's negativity bias? Because people ask me about this all the time. I mean, why do we worry so much? Why do we focus on the negative? And I, I, I don't doubt that this has something to do with our primitive, primal minds to um, be vigilant for our safety. Oh, yeah. You know, the guy who's coming out in the cave in the morning and says this is a beautiful day to walk down by the river. I think I'll just leave my spear here and enjoy the walk. That guy gets <laughs> eaten, and his <laughs> genes do not get passed on. The worrier is the one whose genes get passed on. We, we have to worry. How in the world would we know what our priorities are? How would we organize our thinking? How would we organize our, our tasks? So, so it's an essential part of the brain, and it comes out of the limbic system, and the amygdala is the, the part of that structure that will fire off in emergencies. The pro- biggest problem with worry is it's 100% negative. It only looks at the bad. And so that's why we have to get some kind of balance in our thinking when we start worrying. Yeah. And when we go to that primitive place of worry where we're no longer in control of the fretting, I mean, because there, there's fretting and concern, and then there's, there's tipping over into that uncontrollable worry that then becomes anxiety, fear, phobia that paralyzes us. And so sure. talk a little bit about when we get to that place, how we're no longer operating with the executive functioning part of the brain um, that we really want to lead with, because that's where we have control and self-regulation. Worry is supposed to be step one of the problem-solving process. That's what, you know, gets us, to, you know, gets me to, I've got slides I've got to finish today to send off, or I'm, they're not going to get printed in the conference. And, and so I, you know, worry reminds me, you better get to that. Um, but when worry becomes a self-routine, when it just is self-generating, that's when it gets trouble. It just naming the problem over and over again. You know, how are we going to handle this? What's going to happen to me? And that's the voice that gets totally out of control. And people spontaneously learn to back away to quiet down the worry or seek reassurance from others repeatedly. You know, anything to quiet the worry. And it it becomes that kind of worry monster or, you know, you worship at the altar of worry. What do I need to do right now to quiet you down? And typically that will turn people away from valued activities (laughs) toward trying to staunch this, this noise in their head. Well, this the, the the rumination, the perseveration, you know, just sort of staying on it, getting a laser lock on on what's going on in the mind. You're right; it does it does seem to make it worse. How do we break the cycle? What what are some of the techniques we can use to either um, take a detour, 
or, or, or soothe ourselves? Sure. Well, you know, the very first step, it's much like the fear of flying. The first step in working on the fear of flying is to trust the industry. you got to step back and go, wait a minute, can I, you know, if, I, if they're not going to trust the industry, nothing that we do is going to be of help to somebody who's afraid to fly. When, with worry, you need to step back. And there's two ways you step back. You step back and go, oh, it's happening again. This is, you know, my worry is because... I'm not able to tolerate uncertainty or I'm not able to get closure. And, and so there's a big picture kind of stepping back. And then in the moment, I've got to have a part of me that steps back. It's a lot of what people talk about with mindfulness. Um, step back and go, oh, there I go again into that worry subroutine. You know, and the second thing is I actually want to embrace the fact that I'm worrying I, this is okay with me. I don't mind having this worry pop up. And then I'm going to start manipulating it. But, and the reason that we, you know, it's a weird thing, and I try to talk about it in the book pretty thoroughly, to why in the world would I accept the worry and be fine with it? Well, you only have two choices. You either accept the worry or you fight and resist it, and anything that's resisted persists. So I want to accept that worry at the level of its noise. I don't need to pay attention to it, but I tend to start doing it anyway. And that's that's the beginning of how we shift. And then we're going to step forward into the things we're afraid of. You absolutely have to do that. I'm a cognitive therapist, so we talk about beliefs and all the things that you and I are discussing. But in the end, you must step into the fire with whatever new skills you're developing. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point about accepting the worry, and it is in that resistance, in that in that tension, that it makes the worry actually worse. So I I, I really get what you're saying, and I and I appreciate it. And then the 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 next step, it seems to me, with um you know taking the risk risk of the action, is almost like you you have to muster courage. It's not about making the worry or the fear go away. It's it's uh, creating more of this other thing that actually can trump the worry. Sure. And, uh, you know, a couple of things here. One is, you know, the other reason around accepting the worry is our working memory, what we can hold on to in, at any one moment in our brain, only can hold on to four chunks of information. So if I start wasting my time saying, this is terrible, why am I having these thoughts, why won't they go away? There's chunks of my mind at this very moment that could be used to help me, but they're being burned up by the resistance. So that's the, this, you know, part of what mindfulness is trying to teach us, is to set down that resistance. Then we go forward, not as you're saying, not with confidence, because you can't have confidence up front. You get confidence after, you know, 10,000 repetitions or whatever they would say. You step forward with courage, which is, I'm scared, but it makes sense that I'm doing what I'm doing, so I'm stepping forward. I don't want anybody to step forward into the fire because they're complying to me suggesting they do it. I want people to have an intellectual understanding of the benefit of going toward what I'm afraid of. And then the next thing you do is and this is also crazy, just hang out. You hang out in your distress, 
and your uncertainty because the amygdala, that part of us that fires off, has been traumatized. It's telling you, I'm going to protect you now. We've got to put it in a reasonable facsimile of that past trauma and let it hang out. That's how the amygdala learns that everything is okay and you can handle it. And now it turns down that adrenaline, turns down that epinephrine. And over time, you're not so freaked out about something that was scaring you. I love what you just said. In fact, I wrote it down. Hang out in stress and uncertainty. This is the place where most of us really would rather die than live in this. I know. So, you know, I live in the country and my office my for my individual clients is in the country. And every once in a while, if you walk down the sidewalk to come into my office, you might see a snake. You know, it's probably going to be a black snake. But that is going to be a trauma at that moment. And we will develop a, a fear structure, that's what we call that, in that moment. Now, what happens for the next three or four days? Every stick is a snake. Every garden hose is a snake. Every rustling in the leaves <laughs> is a snake. There's the amygdala going, hey, boss, I'm sorry. I dropped my guard. You had a, a false you know, negative. It, you actually had a positive. There's a snake there, and I wasn't ready. I'm on to it now. I'm going to see every reasonable facsimile of that threat, and I'm going to put you on guard. But after three or four days, the sticks turn back into sticks and garden hoses. I mean, that's the exposure. That's the hanging out with that fear. You keep getting startled, and then you go, oh, honey, you won't believe I saw the dog leash laying on the floor in the, in the garage, and it, I jumped thinking it was a snake. You know, that's how we begin to overcome these traumas. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense when you walk us through it in this way. And yet, when we're in the thick of it, when it's all, we're heated up, we're bothered, we're paralyzed, we're breathing heavy, we, the train has left the station, right? We, can, we cannot think in this rational, uh, on this rational path. And I think what you're saying is that we have to train ourselves to preemptively um, s- start to be more aware. That no, that, it's yes, not DEFCON 4. You know, that garden hose is not going to kill us. We have to train ourselves in self-talk. And the self-talk yeah. has to be pretty skimpy, you know, just saying step forward or, or you can do it or get out of the bathroom or, you know, turn the faucet off or speak up, you know, whatever the particular problem is. When you get anxious, your mind turns to mush. And you can't have much of a conversation with you yourself. You want to plan ahead of time. What, it, what is your strategy? Plan your strategy when you're in a no-problem time, when you have some perspective, and then lock that in. And then when you step into things you're afraid of, the elevator, snakes, or speaking up in a, in a group, or whatever it may be, Operate like a robot. <laughs> Operate like an automaton, like, a, like an actor in the drama. Don't change the script. Because if we allow ourselves in the moment of threat to start analyzing again, is this a good idea to do this? Our amygdala is going to say, boss, this is a bad idea. And we're going to tend to back away. 
I love what you just said about staying on the script. I had a client yesterday who has not flown in many years. She is not a fearful flyer. She has um, anxiety in large public spaces. So she was talking about going to see her daughter in Arizona who's getting married, and she hasn't been on a plane in years. And she says, I am just beside myself with anxiety um, about getting through the airport, not to the airport, but through the airport. So I suggested that she go online and get a, a, a map of the airport of LAX. I said, just get that terminal map. It's Southwest Airlines. And just actually plan your walk through that terminal so you know exactly where to go when you get out of the car. And she, we, were, we were laughing about it. She says, it's really funny. You know, it's, it's just these big places. She said, and I can't even test drive it anymore because when I go to the mall, the malls are empty because everybody's shopping at home, which was mm-hmm. very funny to me. Yeah. And so there you have it. You're beginning. You know, you say, make a plan. Uh, look where your strategy is. Know where you're going. Don't be, you know, lost about all of that. And then once she gets in there, to some degree, I would be saying that she wants to tell herself in some reasonable facsimile, I want this experience. Right? I'm afraid right now. I'm feeling confused, a little lost. I want this feeling. I can handle this feeling. I'm going to keep going, as opposed to saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. Oh, my God, this is too hard. I can't do this. This is, I, oh, how, when am I going to be done? You know, there, all that worry is going to make her more of a victim. So we do want her to rise up and go, I know what's about to happen. I'm ready for the unexpected. I want to go ahead and face this so I can master this over time. And then she steps forward. We are going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about taunting our fear and, you know, bring it on and let's go. But first, I want to do our proper breaks here. Um, You are listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. To learn more about the work of Dr. Reed Wilson and his new book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry, please visit www.noiseinyourhead.com. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And we are talking about that universal emotion that rears its ugly head from time to time in every living, breathing human being, and that is fear and anxiety. My guest is Dr. Reed Wilson. He is the author of Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. Dr. Wilson is the director of the Anxiety Disorders Treatment Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina in the School of Medicine. He also designed a program, if you are just joining us now, for American Airlines for Fearful Flyers, and he is um, WebMD's expert on panic and anxiety. So, Dr. Wilson, prior to the break, we were talking about sort of um, taunting the fear and anxiety and saying, you know, bring on the discomfort when it's happening. Let, let me sort of immerse myself in this because that's where we have the opportunity to confront the little monster. Yeah, sure, and that's one, one of the strategies that you can use. I, how I would say it is, you, you know, if you, whether it's OCD or, or any of the anxiety disorders, externalize the disorder and personify it and say, you know, you can say, look, you, you, don't, you're not, you don't get to take advantage of me now. I'm not going to pay attention to you. You know, it's noise. I hear you over there in the background gnawing away at me. That's fine. If we get sucked into that content, the topic of the worries when we're trying to figure out how to move forward, we tend to sink. But if we can rise up and go, look, I'm having difficulty with uncertainty. I'm kind of have a, a tendency to be more anxious. These thoughts are going to come up. I'm not, you know, talk to the hand. I don't know what we've replaced that one with, but I always thought that was so <laughs> clever, right? You know, go ahead and, you know, it's a little like on the Peanuts cartoons that they've done on TV. Every time you hear the adult talking it's just wah 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 and if we can do that around these noisy worries then that you know that's kind of what we're moving towards I, of course i have thanked my amygdala uh, you know a hundred times in my life you know hit a patch of you don't get this in southern california but a patch of black ice and my car starts skidding and you know my my conscious mind just turns to mush but my unconscious my amygdala kicks in all those parts of my body and mind that save my life. So, you know, that's the great part of it. And then this noisy worry, it's like, forget it, man. You know, give me a best shot. You want to, again, your client walking through the 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 concourse it's like you know give me a best shot make me as anxious as you'd like go ahead give me a give me a panic attack it's it's interesting because exposure treatment so often is about asking the client or the patient to create some of these symptoms and we can actually do it differently by doing what you're talking about which is just tell the disorder to make you more anxious and and you keep going about your business if you get more anxious go okay thanks a lot uh, you know I, I, I welcome you so I, so I greet it 
welcome it, accept it, and then let it go and turn back to what I'm doing. That's the package. That's how you score a point. You welcome it or you taunt it, and then you turn back. And, you know, even if eight seconds later you get disturbed by another thought, you just do that again over and over and over again. This is extremely useful and makes perfect sense. And it's the opposite of, you know, what we probably, many of us have been trained to do in the past. You have a wonderful motto, or, or, or at least I think it's one of your mottos, courage first, comfort last. Right. We're going, you know, if we're going to learn anything, we have to be willing to be awkward, clumsy, unsure, insecure, maybe embarrassed at times. You don't learn anything new without first going through this phase of being clumsy. And so similarly, it's, you know, I'm going to step forward there. It's like I've got to, I'm going to embrace the idea of being scared, not knowing exactly how it's going, and stepping forward anyway. I will get comfort later. I mean, Lisa, I love comfort. I love to be right. Just ask my wife. I, you know, those are great qualities. But when we're trying to learn something new, and here we're talking about skills, learn something new using a weak skill. It's a weak yeah. skill because we never haven't used it before. Then we've got to be willing to do it clumsily for a while until we master it. And many people don't like that phase, and then they drop out of the work and don't, you know, go back to being relatively comfortable. But if you seek comfort, your life gets very small. You can do it. You can yeah. be pretty certain as long as you just keep running the same routines that you've all, you know, as long as I do today and tomorrow what I did yesterday and it worked, I'm comfortable and secure. And, and that, you know, people do that, but it doesn't bring you many adventures in your life. And I dare say, doesn't bring us happiness. It may bring us a, a level of certainty and calm and safety, and therefore it is pleasant and a, a, I'm sure content at some point. But if you want to look towards creating a more positive emotion in your life, that risk-taking element, that curiosity and that wonder, and, and, I, and when I talk about risk-taking, it's healthy risk-taking is what you and I are suggesting. We're not, you know, telling sure. people oh, to go absolutely. don squirrel yeah. suits and, and, and tell you know, them that, you know, you can do this. And we're all tar- also talking about anticipatory anxiety and dread. And we got to also know that as I approach these circumstances, I'm going to feel, uh, you know, dreadful about it. But that is not predictive of how the action's going to go. Right. So, yeah. you know, I've got a great video I show in some of my trainings of a like 11 year old girl taking a 60 meter ski jump for the first time and it's and it's just a beautiful little you know three minute video with the, her head cam and so forth and she's you can hear she's talking to her coach and she's just you can hear her voice quaking and yet at the same time she's you know saying messages like i'm gonna do this and you know and then she she does it and doesn't die <laughs> you know at the end as she meets her classmates down there she's whooping and hollering she's saying 60 meters seems like nothing now right just having mm. to don't do it one time but if you don't push through that scare you don't discover that it's a piece of cake i mean it's you can do it 
push through the scare. That's the mantra. Right. There's another mantra, experience push through the, the scare. Feature. You have to have the experience or nothing. I can talk till I'm blue in the face, and you know this about your own work, but unless that client walks out there and experiments with what we're talking about to get some information, they will not learn anything. Yeah. I'm thinking of another sweet story of a, a young guy I saw yesterday who is um, recovering from addiction. And he's a former young man, former gang member. And he's talking about how, how pissed off, I'm, I'm going to use that word, he is at his treatment. He's just like, he, he, he just wants to go out and use. He's had enough. He's feeling so sad and he doesn't know what to do. And he's saying, I don't want to talk about it. And then he's telling me, he, as, he, as he doesn't want to talk about it, he keeps talking about it. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know you don't want to talk about it. So tell me more. And he's crying and he's saying, oh, it just, it, it hurts. I'm so sad. I've lost so many friends. And he's going into the story of 20 of his friends being killed in gang related violence. And he keeps going deeper and deeper out of one side of his mouth. He's saying how he doesn't want to talk about it. The other side of his mouth, he keeps talking about it. And then at the end, he goes, gee, thanks for listening to me. I feel better now. <laughs> And yeah, I didn't do anything. Right. I just sat there. And, and I smiled at him. And, the, you know, his face is red. He's, he's, he's all wet from tears. And he starts smiling. And I was like, there you go. That's it. Yeah. And there are those two voices. You know, he, he articulated, he expressed that voice of resistance. I don't want to talk about it. And he had the other voice that he made executive. Right? He yeah. Kill off this first voice. They both need to be present because you and I know how how fragile it can be around trying to stick with, you know, controlling your addiction. Or I have no earthly idea how you control the gang issues, but you know, certainly it's that. And so we want to have all parts of it and just welcome all parts of it. And then and then what is the valued behavior that you want? What do you seek? If we don't get an an image, an outcome picture that has great value to you, you're not going to push through the threat. So he also needs to go, well, I, you know, I've got two little kids at home and I, you know, I want to protect them and I want to have a safe environment. That's what I'm you know, living for. And so, so that can pull him through the discomfort. You know, he wants to remember that when he starts to struggle as well as reach out and talk to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I, I hear what you're saying. You have given us so many incredible tips here. I want to urge our readers to head over and buy your book, Dr. Reed Wilson's new book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. To learn more about him and his work, connect with him over on his website at www.noiseinyourhead.com. Thank you, Reed. Here are a few closing thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. And I'm going to add today, and a little healthy risk-taking. Thank you for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley and Dr. Reed Wilson, wishing you Kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. 
Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.